Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. This week, we thought we would do something a little different, and I wanted to get you to talk about an aspect of your career which I think a lot of people will be interested in, Mm -hmm. um, about a comedian that you are probably most associated with, uh, Bob Monkhouse. So you worked with Bob for all of your professional writing life, Mm. right up until he died in 2003. Yeah. So... Does that make you his longest-serving writer? I, I would have thought so. Yeah, Marky, I would have thought I am his longest-serving, was his longest-serving writer. His, his early career, he spent with a, uh, another writer called Dennis Goodwin. Uh, and Bob's performance career with Dennis Goodwin and his writing career with Dennis Goodwin lasted about, spanned about 10 years until Dennis Goodwin decided to pitch out to the United States and um, that was in 1962, I think. So I think probably Dennis's career with Bob lasted about 10 years. Then, um, to my knowledge, Bob did use other writers from time to time, but predominantly wrote most of his material himself. Then when he came across a show called The Golden Shot, that was written by a writer called Wally Malston, an excellent topical joke writer who did all the golden shots with Bob and wrote for Bob uh, in Cabaret or Bob's live performances. So if ever Bob needed a topical joke, uh, Wally would be uh, Bob's go-to guy. Then Wally, after Golden Shot finished, decided that he wouldn't work for Bob Monkhouse anymore and he would rather work for Ted Rogers, another comedian. Um, Unfortunately... Can't say one that I've heard of. Not 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 well remembered. No, absolutely. I think it's a, a generation and a half ago now. Uh, not high in the, the great pantheon of comedians. Although he did he did host one of the highest rating game shows in the seventies. It was called Three Two One. Um, but I won't bore you with with that because it's pretty much long forgotten. So when did you when did you first meet Bob? Oh, I, I, there are other writers. I'm, I'm, that's, oh, sorry, I'm, I'm jumping I'm just, No, I'm just, I'm just trying to think, because there was a guy called, a, a brilliant writer called uh, Dennis um, Burson, who came from Leeds, uh, and he was a very, very good writer. He had a terrific work ethic, um, and he wrote those early series of Celebrity Squares um, and an awful lot of Bob's comedy material. And Dennis hung on. Dennis continued to write for Bob uh, after he and after Dennis and Gary Chambers signed an exclusive contract to London Weekend as their in-house um, entertainment writers. So then Bob then went to the BBC and Neil Shand wrote for Bob. And then I kind of took over. And I suppose I did about 20 
25 years with Bob. I'd written for Bob since I was 16, uh, right through way through to the time he died. So I reckon I did about 45 years with Bob. Um, right at the very end, becoming his head writer, I took over from Neil Shand for that, those last 20 years. And so, yeah, I would say I was Bob's <laughs> long answer. It's a short question. I was Bob's longest serving writer. Excellent. And when did you first meet him in the flesh? Um, that would have been, let me think now, that would have been in 1970-something. Uh, I'll tell you for why. I had already been sending jokes to Bob. Um, I'd sent them to the uh, to the studios in Birmingham, where he was hosting a show called Golden Shot every Sunday live. That meant I knew where he was every Sunday. Mm. So if I, if I scribbled out my jokes... And mailed, stuck down the envelope and mailed it to um, the studios, the ATV studios in Birmingham. That I knew, with luck and a prevailing wind, that they would actually get to him at his dressing room, so he would open the envelope at some point and read these particular jokes. Then he contacted me on letter-headed paper, so that I knew he lived in Loudon Road in St John's Wood, which meant that I wasn't very far from me. We lived in Northwest Ten. Uh, and uh, St John's Wood is Northwest Eight. It wasn't that far. A bit of investigation from you there. Why? It's weird. That's before the internet. Mm. Yeah, you know, you can't kind of Google Bob Monkhouse house or where does Bob Monkhouse live, and you see a, a picture of his house come up. Um, which oddly enough is how I found out where Jay Leno lived. Oddly enough, I wanted to send some jokes to Jay Leno in the in the last knockings of my career. I thought, oh, I fancy writing some topical jokes for Leno. Where the hell does he live? And I saw a documentary on YouTube called Jay Leno's Garage, uh, where they, um, they not, not the series that's on at the minute, which is his version of, of brilliant version of, of uh, Top Gearish kind of stuff. But this was uh, Garage Mahal. It was an obscure show where a team of engineers would go around to people's garages and convert them because most garages were rubbish holes where you couldn't get the car in. And so like a pick my garage. Exactly that. Yeah, absolutely. But it was called Garage Mahal. And Jay Leno appeared on this on this particular series. And I thought, OK, well, that's what his garage looks like in the wide shot. And that's what his house looks like. OK. So then I Googled, uh, where does Jay Leno live? And they said, oh, Hollywood Hills. Tower Road or some sign. So investigation led me to, hey, that's where Jay Leno lives. What's that number he lives at? Okay, I can FedEx my jokes to that. Didn't even open the envelope. Wasn't interested in a British writer. And frankly, who can blame him? But that's not the point. So I couldn't discover where Bob Monkhouse lived via the internet because the internet hadn't been invented yet. But through letter-headed paper, I knew where he lived. So I could send my jokes directly to Loudon Road. Spin forward a couple of years. That was when I was 16. Spin forward a couple of years to when I was 18. And I get a letter from Bob saying, as you've been writing some jokes for my uh, cabaret career, uh, my cabaret performances for a couple of years, it's about time we met. You don't live that far away. Come to the house. So the first time I met Bob was when I knocked on the door of this Loudon Road, very nice Victorian house in Loudon Road. And... Opening the door was Bob Monkhouse, and that was the first time I met him. That must have been a very nerve-wracking experience, considering yeah. you... So you said you'd been writing for a couple of years, so you hadn't met him for those hadn't two met years, him. and no. now suddenly you're invited in. That's right, and I was getting letters from him, uh, because that was the way to communicate in those days. Mm. Uh, you got a letter and, and a cheque uh, saying, thank you very much, I use these jokes, and here's a cheque. And you think, oh, that's very generous, thank you very much. Um uh, but when he said, let's come and meet, I thought, oh, gosh, here we go. So I got the Baker Lou line up to St. John's Wood and found my way to Loudon Road 
Uh, and I've, I can still actually picture the, the front door now. God, and I can see him open the door. I can see the hallway at Loudon Road and the checkered tiles on the floor. God, yeah, it's just um, a great memory you've, you've uh, dragged into my into my um, my mind. Yeah, can that, you, that was um, the first time I met him. Can you remember the first joke that you sold to him? Now, I know we did touch on when you sold the first joke to him, so I think you were 16 at the yeah, time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, can you remember what the actual joke was? Mm, can, actually, because I've, I've figured it out since last we spoke. Um, it, because he was doing this, this live Sunday, night, Sunday afternoon show called Golden Shot, um, there were hostesses on the show, mm-hmm. the lovely Anne Aston, who I've subsequently met. Uh, it was a lovely, lovely lady. Beautiful, beautiful woman. Great hostess uh, with her own little foibles for that particular show. Um, and there were guest hostesses as well. And the guest hostess of this particular month was uh, an actress and dancer called Wei Wei Wong, Chinese girl. Used to dance for the um, uh, the Dougie Squires dancers. Uh, very beautiful girl. Sadly died at an early age. Um Wei Wei Wong and Anne Aston were the hostesses. And so I formulated this intro for Bob, which went something along the lines of, and it's not a funny joke, it's just smartish wordplay. Please welcome the girl with the almond eyes, Wei Wei Wong, and the girl with the nutty brain, <laughs> Anne Aston. I was... It was felicitous phrase making, really. But he really liked that mm. because it it was something to say, you know, which was interesting. As opposed to saying, please welcome my hostesses, here they are. But it's just something cleverish. And she was quite famous for not, not being able to add up. Anne Aston was, uh, yes, she was, you're quite right. Yeah, there was some maths involved in, in her, her role in The Golden Shot. And she famously, notoriously and comedically uh, couldn't make these on-the-spot computations. And so that's why she had the nutty brain. It was... It, it, it's, I suppose now it smacks of, of <laughs> desperation. But it was, as I say, it was something to say. That was the first joke I actually sold to Bob Monkhouse. So was that the first television series that you worked on with him? Um, in a, I yeah. a full capacity? I, no, not in a full capacity at all, because what I was doing, I was sending jokes contributory jokes to golden shot and as i say wally morston was the head writer um, on that particular show and wally was very generous because it was jokes he didn't have to think of mm. bob would come in and say this guy this young guy sent me this let's do this and wally would say yeah sure go ahead <laughs> something i don't have to write now because i've got plenty of other stuff to write on the show thank you very much i tell you, i do remember though one of the jokes that i took along when i first met bob at loudon road when i was 18 and at that time, it was Cliff Richard who was seeing, dating Sue Barker, a tennis player, now a broadcaster and quiz show host. Presenter of a question of sport. Exactly. God, you know stuff. In future, no longer. Well, yeah, you know stuff. But yep, yeah, Sue Barker. So Cliff Richard was dating Sue Barker, which anchors it in time. And, um, um, and because I was writing cabaret stuff for Bob, which could be saucy. Uh, the joke, I t- one of the jokes on the page I took along, which he, he did laugh at, I must say. Um, I see Cliff Richard is dating Sue Barker. He's very religious, you know, Cliff. But even in their relationship, he does a sermon on the mount. Okay, that's the joke. And uh, it's saucy enough to be 
performed in cabaret mm. at that time. And it went ever so well. It went ever so well. And Bob's writer friend, Tony Hawes, uh, was in the house at the same time. And he, he was very generous with his laughter as well. Then that then cued a whole bunch of rude jokes with biblical references <laughs> in an ad-lib basis. But yeah... Um, Another weird stuff that you could you could get you know um, into Bob's act when Prince Charles and Camilla no Prince Charles and Camilla nothing to do with that no when Prince Charles and uh, the Princess Diana the Princess of Wales were expecting their first baby and they they produced Prince William mm-hmm. little baby Prince William was born and that night. Um, the joke I suggested to Bob for Cabaret was, um, and when Charles changes the nappy, he still gets a Will's whiff. Okay, now, I've got to explain that joke, because back then there were little cigarettes, little cigar cigarettes called Will's whiffs. Okay. And Bob said to me on the telephone, I don't think that's going to play. So I said, why not? It's kind of a, it's a shit joke. And he said, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I'll tell you what, I'll try it. And the next morning after he'd performed the joke, he phoned up and he said, you were quite right. He said that got a good laugh. So that was an interesting lesson that someone with even Bob's consummate understanding of comedy and what will make the crowd laugh. Um, even sometimes he could be slightly off. Good display of trust as well in your in your joke writing, If even though he was... Sort of not too sure, but still went ahead and did it and uh, yeah. reaped the rewards because I suppose the yeah. risk was with him there in actually performing the joke. For sure, absolutely. Uh, it, it was a joke in a, a whole batch of jokes in that mm. part of the act. But yeah, give it a guy, uh, give it a go because Colin seems to have some sort of faith in it. We had another such discussion much, much later in our professional time together, which was. Bob had a routine about sleeping in the nude, uh, except on those really long flights. That, 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 you know, the routine, and I'm sure our listener will remember that routine as well. (laughs) And there was an idea he had about sleeping in the nude in his hotel room, or laying it on his bed nude in his hotel room. And he said, and, um, and the chambermaid came in, and what word do we want here? And I said, eventually. And he said, I think finally. So we had a little discussion about it. And in the end, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm confident with finally. Okay. And sure enough, that's how the joke goes. I was, I was laying on the bed in the hotel room, stark naked. And the chambermaid walked in. <laughs> finally. That's the joke. And mm. you think, yeah. And it, it, it's a fine difference between eventually and finally. Very intricate. Yeah. Very precise, but finally has the edge and gets the better laugh. Mm. Also, finally, eventually, uh, five syllables in eventually. Mm. And for economy of performance, finally is better. So, you know, nine times out of ten, he was actually spot on with what he, he knew would work in the joke. But good to bat the ideas off one another. Nice to be trusted in that way as well, but that was born of a very, very, very long time of of um, a writing association. Mm. Well, moving slightly later on, um, in nineteen eighty four, Bob signed for the BBC. Yeah. So, what did that mean for you as well? Well, that was 
that was a good move for me. Um, I'd, I'd joined the team of Family Fortunes, an ITV show in 1981, um, while I was still working um, at a full-time job in publishing and in kids' comics. But I could take time off, take my holiday off and go to studios and watch re the recordings and work on those jokes at night, contestant jokes for Family Fortunes. But when Bob signed for the BBC in a very handsome deal that Peter Pritchard, his manager, put together in 1984, that meant that actually I could, I could quit my job, my full-time job, and supply material as a, as a commissioned official writer of a Bob's Full House. So it was my first real full-time bang-on I'm a professional writer uh, series. And mercifully, I think I've, I think I've quit the, the job on the kids' comics at, on the Friday and um, handed in my notice and quit. And then I, I think we started on BFH on the Monday, so I, there wasn't really any gap in continuity work-wise. And it was a career move that you, you'd wanted? Yeah. Oh, admittedly, I, I joined IPC at the age of 18. As I said last time, I, I didn't go to university because I wasn't bright enough. But I wanted to get out there and work and earn. Um, and I, got, I landed this job. Uh, but and although I gave, gave it my best shot and I wasn't very good at it, I always knew I wanted to be uh, a comedy writer, writing jokes and writing stuff for television of a comedy nature. And so that's when I, I, I managed it. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a, a big move for me. The great thing about Bobswell House was it was a bingo show. It was a bingo game show on a Saturday night. But it, it had what I call a high joke quotient, which meant that almost everything, every, every question Bob asked, uh, he could top with a joke, a specially written joke. So on that show, you found yourself writing general knowledge questions or science questions or geography questions. <clears throat> and the joke would sometimes come first. You think, oh, that's a good joke. Now, what question can I ask mm. which would elicit an answer so that would enable Bob then to do the joke? Yeah. It was a very joke-driven show. He would do a monologue at the top of the show about his wife. He would, he would then introduce the four contestants and do at least five or six jokes with each contestant about what they do and what they did for a living and rah, rah, rah. Uh, then he would play the game with all the questions, uh, a joke for most of the questions in most of the rounds. Then there was a very exciting end game where the final bingo card would reveal on the answer of correct answer of general knowledge questions, the holiday they would win. So yeah, high joke quotient. And that was good for me because as a jokesmith, it meant that I, I was busy and I, and I was kind of wanted. Um, you were credited as a script editor on the talent show, Bob says opportunity knocks. So yeah. How did that work? Um, Oh, Bob Says Opportunity Knocks. That was um, a talent show long before Britain's Got Talent and all that stuff. Long, long before. Uh, it was a talent search show based on an original concept, uh, a radio show. Uh, and then a performer called Huey Green adopted it for television, Opportunity Knocks. Uh, and, uh, and Bob Says Opportunity Knocks was a revival of, of that particular concept because it's such a good name, Opportunity Knocks. And it, and it was at that time there were a lot of shows with the presenter's name in the title like mm. Bruce Forsyth's Generation Game Larry Grayson's Gener Generation Game that kind of stuff Jimmy Tarbuck's Winner Takes All and but you couldn't say 
Bob Monkhouse's opportunity knocks because it wasn't Bob's Mon- Bob Monkhouse's opportunity that was knocking. It was the people who were the new talent. Mm. And I always thought that Bob says, Bob says opportunity knocks was a bit torturous. It was a bit, it, it, it was clunky. It wasn't a, a long title. Yeah. A bit of a mouthful of a, of a title as well. But it was, a. I think, maybe at Peter's insistence that Bob's name gets in the title. And yeah. I'm thinking, how the hell do we do that? Opportunity Docs ran many series um, with a very, very lean production team. Uh, Stuart Morris was the producer. Uh, Lydia Seaton was the PA. Colin Fay was the production manager. Alison Jagger was the secretary. Tom Hood was the was the AFM and that was it that was the that was the entire production team you look at Britain's Got Talent now it's, it's hundreds of people are involved well, I was going to say was it uh, sort of the precursor to what we would know now as the X Factor or Britain's Got Talent yeah very very much absolutely uh, but it's fascinating to see how many people are involved in modern day uh, talent shows and how few people who work very very hard put together Opportunity Knocks which was a big Saturday night entertainment show and it and it did produce some uh, some well known faces. Um, Who was the biggest that you can remember? Oh, there's a bunch. There's a bunch. Um, I suppose Darren Day, who's a familiar name now, was was uh, a young performer who did impressions, came on the show, uh, and was very very successful. Um, there's Jane Tunnicliffe, uh, who was a member of the Dicky Bards with her partner Mandy Scott at that time. Uh, they did a terrific act, very funny act. And Jane then went on, having um, uh, had some success on Opportunity Knocks, went on to play uh, a significant role in Coronation Street for many years. She played Yana in Coronation Street and then worked very closely with Paul O'Grady, uh, still writes for Paul now. She appeared on Lily at the Lily Live and Lily at the whatever drone it was called, I can't remember, and worked very closely with Peter Kay. So she's a a very successful and talented performer. Um, who else? Um, let me see. Um, Mike Doyle, Welsh comic, still works very, very well in pantomime. Simon Cartwright does very good impression of Bob Monkhouse, still works as an impressionist. John Martin, comedian, still working long and hard. Um, and I th- so quite a number of people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Darren, I suppose, in fairness, Darren was, is the, the highest profile name that, that, that is familiar mm. now. No, I, I, he was good. He is good fun, Darren. We worked very hard on helping out his act. So yeah, so I was a script editor on that, which meant that I could help the perform the, the comedians with their acts, basically. And I wasn't the only writer on the show. There was Gavin Osborne, Paul Alexander, John Junkin, um, all in various roles, you know. But I, but I was the script editor, which was rather nice. Um, so I suppose in the world of TV, particularly when you're a performer at the the peak of your career you get many offers to join other channels so central tv offered bob a huge contract to go back to itv yeah so you've gone to bbc done your shows there and now yeah you promised to uh, go back to itv and how did how did that affect you i suppose with that uh, large increase again for Bob's Bob's well, contract. Yeah, that was the thing about Peter Pritchard. He was very, he's a, a terrific agent, a very canny schemer. Um, Bob left ITV uh, when he felt that ITV were becoming too familiar with him and not treating him terribly well and said, okay, damn you lot, we're off to the BBC. And then the BBC 
I wouldn't say the BBC was treating Bob uh, in, in a cavalier manner, but when um, Central Television called Peter in and said, look, we very much like Bob to come back to ITV and we we like to offer him these kinds of shows for that kind of money. The business sense in Peter said, well, okay, if, if we're going to do... We're talking about those kinds of fees. It makes sense. It's sensible for me to advise my client to go to to ITV f for a bigger salary, and that that predicated the move to uh, to back to ITV and Central Television. And what were the shows that he was being offered there to entice him back? Um, the only show that was on offer was the sixty four thousand dollar question, which. Although you tried very, very, me, myself, Junkin and Bob tried very, very, very hard to massage into it, into a a show that could accommodate comedy and jokes. It didn't, the jokes didn't sit very well in the $64,000 question, which was effectively a, only a precursor of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Mm. Um, but of course, at that time, uh, the broadcasting restrictions allowed only for £6,400 to be won. Oh, so that's why it was that uh, that figure. Yeah. it does seem like a bit of an arbitrary yeah. figure plucked yeah. from thin air. Yeah, the $64,000 question was an American show and it had come into modern parlance. Oh, oh what's going to happen here? Who's going to get in? Wilson or Wilson or Heath? Oh, that's the $64,000 question. It was, it was a, uh, one of those phrases that was used. Mm. Um, but you couldn't call it the £6,400 question because that's just crap. So it was it was always one of those shows that was slightly out of kilter. But if you look at it now, if there are any tapes that exist, if you look at it now, it's still a, a damn, go, damn good and bold effort from Bob and the team uh, under Peter Harris, the producer, to to inject a bit of entertainment into what was if, if effectively a general knowledge quiz for money. Um, so Bob was a man of many hats. He was mm. not just a TV host, um, but also a stand-up comic, as well as working the corporate circuit and being a, a straight actor. So uh, having uh, been so close to him, what do you think was the most important um, aspect of his career to him? Definitely the stand-up. Definitely the stand-up. Without and what, Why, do, why do you say that? Because it enabled him to strut, in, strut his stuff in front of a crowd and have that immediate and personal rapport with the crowd. Um, yeah, it's fine. Lovely acting. Beautiful. Thoroughly enjoyed doing that. And, and of course, thoroughly enjoyed doing the quiz shows and the television appearances. Uh, but that was a means to an end, I was felt, for Bob and for Peter. It meant that if you're a familiar face on television, cracking gags, that people would buy tickets to come and see you live. Mm, and it was for the exposure. Exactly that. And it was those live performances uh, in which he thrived. He absolutely loved it. And bear in mind as well, Mark, he was standing in front of a crowd behind a microphone at the age of, of 18. So he'd been on a platform behind a mic all his life. It was like a second home to him. I can imagine it must be quite, because uh, you get such a rush, or I imagine you get such a rush at uh, that sort of event to then sort of go back to the everyday monotony of, of life, not to, uh, not to have that. Yeah, absolutely. But at that time, when Bob really was riding high on the nightclub circuit, there were so many opportunities to perform in nightclubs around the country. 
I mean, he spent a lot of his time behind the wheel of his car driving up and down the motorways to various clubs, particularly in the North and the Midlands. Uh, and and that suited me because he, he also had this great thirst for new material. Uh, if he could go on that night with a few jokes, just a few, didn't matter, just a couple of jokes out of this morning's headlines, uh, that would they were real crowd pleasers. The, the, the audience was very impressed that he had something vaguely amusing to say about stuff that had happened in the news 10 minutes ago. I suppose keeps the energy for him as well because he's not just performing, you know, the same material for a year and then doing an entirely new show. Mm. If he's always getting updated material, at least it keeps him keeps it fresh. That's a very good point. Yeah, and he and he did work very very hard on freshening his material. It, it evolved over the years, and and the act that he would have done oh, two years ago would be nothing like the act he was doing now. Yeah, so you could see a totally different. Yeah. Different act. And bear in mind, he was very creative. He loved, he was never happier when he's not on stage, never happier sitting quietly scribbling his own jokes. Uh, and it very nice to actually be in the same room as him as we both scribbled jokes. Trying That's to th- good fun. Yeah, trying to think of an angle, sitting in total silence, trying to think of an angle. Um, my goodness, I, I can't think of an example, but I, I, I will for next time. Um, so moving to one of the big shows that Bob did, which was hosting the National Lottery Live. Yeah. That must have been a very big deal with a live TV programme on primetime Saturday night. Yeah. Was that quite a high-pressurised thing for you to work on as well? Um, I, it, what it was was great fun. It's oh, It was huge fun. I th- it aired between 8 o'clock on Saturday night and about 20 past 8 live from television centre BBC television centre and it enabled Bob to do three or four minutes of topical jokes at the top of the show Uh, and Rob Colley and Debbie Barham and a host of other very very skillful writers uh, um, particularly Debbie and and, um, and, and Rob uh, wrote topical jokes along with me uh, and I kind of filtered them and and said, maybe this is a rough outline. And Bob would then go through it and say, no, I prefer this and this and this. And I've written these jokes as well. And between us, on on the Saturday afternoon in the dressing room, we'd mould together the monologue, uh, the topical monologue. And in 20 minutes of National Lottery Live, it was a real variety show because Bob would do his monologue. Um, He would introduce Mystic Meg, um, the uh, astrologer, who would predict who who might be winning this this week? And it was very camp. It was a lot of smoke and 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 um, crystal balls and Meg looking fantastic, saying, "I see who will be winning this week." Oh, it was just brilliant show business. And then he'd, he'd introduce um, a band, uh, Phil Collins, uh, that kind of level of band, you know, big, and big, perform- show. big show. And then he would then he would interview um, Piers Brosnan, who was plugging his latest show. And then get Piers Brosnan to, to to start the National Lottery and do the National Lottery draw, and, uh, and so it was a real big show, and it was a great buzz to do. Um, was it? Was there any pressure? Mm, no, not really, not really. Well, I, I remember when I was younger, you showing me footage of when the actual machine went wrong. Yeah, Can you tell tell everyone that story. Well, okay. Um, we had a fantastic. We had two producers, Mark Wells 
Uh, and then Mark went on to do Top of the Pops and Peter Estel, who used to produce the old Wogan chat shows, came in. Uh, and, and Peter was fantastic. Oh, God, I love Peter. No longer with us now. Oh, I love that man dearly. And so did Bob. Um, and, and Peter was, was very much a journalist, so he didn't quite know how to approach Bob Monkhouse and this man who needs writers off my budget, you know, who wants Colin Edmonds and Rob <laughs> and Debbie. But he soon got to kind of knew what we were about, and it was marvellous. And I remember Peter coming in to the dressing room one day. And, and Peter never interfered with the monologue. He trusted Bob implicitly with the monologue. But one day he came in and said, uh, gentlemen, I have a problem with the Fergie gag. And Bob said, OK, it's out. And Peter said, thank you, and left the room. And I thought, that is just brilliant. Bob's, tr Bob's trust in Peter's production uh, and editorial value. So I'm going I'm to get grief for the Fergie joke. Please drop it. Sure, it's dropped. One day, knock on the door, it's Peter saying, uh, Camelot, who ran the National Lottery, keep pressing me. We've got to rehearse a machine breakdown. And Big Mouth Me said, oh, Peter, that's never going to happen. And Peter said, I know it's never going to happen. And Bob said, well, it's never going to happen. No, it's not. But if that's, let's, let's, let's give them a breakdown. Yeah, let's give them a, a machine breakdown. So in the afternoon, in between rehearsals of the live show, uh, we did. We re Bob rehearsed a machine breakdown. He said, I came off saying, that's never going to happen. Next week, <laughs> guess what happened? Uh, and it was a great show. Elton John and Luciano Pavarotti were the music guests. I mean, yeah, the biggest names in the world. It was just fantastic. And sure enough, damn machine broke down. And um, uh, Bob took no notice of what had been rehearsed <laughs> last week. <laughs> Um, with with his um, uh, delicate and deft wit, and Alan Dedicote, the the um, the voice of the balls, the voiceover guy, terrific voiceover guy. Between them, they they handled the situation beautifully. Because when when the uh, when the guest um, person from the crowd, from the audience actually uh, pressed the button, the damn the damn balls wouldn't drop, and so. Uh, um, Bob took it upon himself to say, "Well, we'll be back after casualty because you need the results of uh, you, you're going to need the result of the National Lottery live." And I know in the gallery, uh, director Jeff Miles and Peter Russell were saying, "Well, apparently we're going to be back after, <laughs> after casualty." And sure enough, yeah, we had forty minutes uh, while casualty aired um, on BBC One to figure out a vague script. Of, of what we could do so we could in the five minutes so Bob could um, instigate the the, uh, the draw again very exciting times actually it was just that really was an adrenaline rush we need to get some comedy out of this and also we need to emphasise the fact that Mystic Meg predicted this all day Mystic Meg had been the, the Aristrides yeah. were saying the machine will break down or shut up Meg and that kind of stuff so I said let's do that let's do that as a good conversation have Meg there that's a great idea so we so that was great fun cobbling that together in moments um, so that's the, a vague outline of, of, of when the machine the first time the, the lottery machine draw machine ever broke down another big show for Bob was uh, an audience with Bob Monkhouse yeah uh, and that's it's inspired two series of Bob Monkhouse on the spot, mm. which sort of established him as an elder statesman of uh, British comedy. Yeah. So what was your involvement in those shows? Um, when um, 
When London Weekend, Nigel Lithgow, who was the controller of entertainment at London Weekend at that time, said, I want to do a Monkhouse audience with, uh, Bob said, it's an hour. He said, yeah, okay, right. What I'm not going to do is going to, I'm not going to field questions from the audience that I don't know. I'm using this as an opportunity to strut my stuff, okay. Some questions I can field, which are ad lib, but I want to structure it in such a way that I can do chunks of comedy that I know are going to work. And so for about six months, um, he predominantly, and I, and Dennis Burson, uh, and to a certain extent John Junkin, uh, wrote bits and pieces and chunks and material, and then suggested the question which would elicit that routine from Bob. Um, I know, I do know for a fact that uh, that Victoria Wood very much advised Bob to engineer his audience within that fashion so that he could make the most of it. Um, and so I, I was fortunate enough to go to the West Indies uh, where Bob had a house and we spent a very nice fortnight in the sun fashioning material great chunks of stuff about bob's wife and his love life and his home life and stuff that would that would um, produce interesting answers to questions um, offered by an audience of celebrities that then was that was a that was another good um, springboard for a bbc show called bob monkhouse on the spot where the audience put bob put bob monkhouse literally on the spot with the questions and the the kind of the thinking behind the show is very much audience with. So, yeah, we kind of know what the audience are going to say, but let's... So you could bat out as many jokes as... That, that was, yeah, that was the idea. Mm. But what it meant was, it meant that suddenly Bob was struck his stuff with all that magnificent comedy performance technique. And, and as Paul O'Grady said, uh, total command of the house. Yeah. You know, the stage presence. And I think so many people looked at Bob in... in a, in a different light, and thought, "Wow, yeah, this this is a master craftsman at work here," and that that really swung it with the, the young wave of comedians coming through. Um, when he sadly passed away in two thousand and three, Bob left your left his famous joke books to you, mm. um, and they in fact inspired an award nominated documentary. Yeah. So what's the what's the story behind that? Um, yeah, Bob. Bob died and in his will uh, bequeathed me his... Um, very famous joke books. Very famous joke books. Um, and which was oh, just fantastic. But as I think I've said this before on uh, a radio show. Bob left them to me because he knew that I would use them in the way that he used them. He knew they wouldn't become museum pieces. So that if I'm writing for other performers, as I was at that time... Uh, and if I needed a joke about the weather today, for example, it's been snowing here, I could go to W, in, get, get one of the volumes, go to the index tabs on the right-hand side, go to W, open it up, and there'd be women, wife, weather, I hear weather, rain, snow, okay. And there'd be a couple of snow jokes. So I could press those snow jokes into service if they were appropriate for the time and the place and, and what the snow was like outside. So Bob knew that I, I wouldn't put them in a glass case or send them to a museum. He knew that I would use them as he'd use them as a working tool, 
as a reference. And all beautifully hand handwritten, yeah, with little cartoons in corners. Mm. I mean, they are truly works of art. Yeah. In of themselves. Yeah, I've, I've said in the past that it's like the Book of Kells. They're beautifully illustrated. Mm. And that was purely for his benefit. I've said before, it's purely for his benefit. Beautiful handwriting, different colours, cartoons, purely to amuse himself because they were never intended for publication. And I'm going to honour that. Um, uh, I'm going to respect that wish of his. They're never going to be published. They can be shown, but they're never going to be published. Um, and uh, they inspired... Uh, <laughs> Uh, a three-part documentary series which was eventually hosted by Paul O'Grady. And the story behind that, a long answer to a short question, was showing the joke books to Bobby Bragg, um, who was just to cheer Bobby up, because Bobby at that time wasn't very well with cancer. And Bobby happened to mention to Paul Manette and Brian Levison, two sitcom writers, uh, I've seen Bobby's books, Cole showed them to me, and they said, well, we'd love to see that. They then mentioned it to a friend of theirs who has just become controller of entertainment at Channel... Uh, it wasn't Channel 5. It was uh, UK TV Gold. Uh, a clever, clever man called Brian, called Simon Lupton. Yeah, Brian and Paul uh, mentioned the fact that I'd got the books, Bobby had seen them, they were wonderful, to Simon Lupton. Simon Lupton contacted me and said, do you think there's a documentary in Bob's joke books? And I heard myself saying... Oh, I say, nice thinking, Simon, but I don't think so. I don't really think so. Because they're, they're, they're books, they're an inanimate object. I, I wouldn't know how to make a documentary, how you would make a documentary about them. And then I put the phone down and I thought, you're an idiot. All your life, you've been pitching ideas to controllers of channels saying, mm. would you like to do this idea? And then finding excuses not to do it. Now, suddenly I've got a controller coming to me saying, is there anything in this? And I'm saying no to him. You're off your head. Get out of here. So I called him back and said, no, you're right. You're right, Simon. So he said, well, who do you think could produce it? We need a production company. So I, I suggested a production company I'd worked with before and a, a, a control of entertainment I worked before, with before. Uh, so Mark Wells and Glenn Middleham was the production company they had at the time, was the chosen team to produce this documentary. And how did you get Paul Paul O'Grady involved? Well, when Mark Wells and Glenn Middleham said to me, we'd like you to be involved in a, in a ranking editorial capacity because you knew Bob better than anyone alive, uh, other than his family, other than Abigail, his, his daughter, we want you to be heavily involved. And I said, well, all I would ask for is that everyone who appears on the show knew Bob or met Bob, had been in his presence. I don't want people coming on saying, oh, my mum used to like him. No, I don't want them interested in that. I want them to have something something important to say. Then I thought, Bob loved Paul O'Grady. Bob was the an early advocate of Lily Savage. Bob once told me that he snuck into the, the back of the Vauxhall Tavern, gay pub down in South London, to watch, Paul, watch Lily Savage on stage. Um, and, he, and he loved Loved Lily Savage. And Lily came on the lottery show a couple of times. And Paul came on as Lily on a show which celebrated Bob's 70th birthday on BBC called Bob Monkhouse, Over the Limit. Yeah, it was called that. And so I knew Bob loved Paul. And I knew Paul was very grateful to Bob for the encouragement that he gave him early doors. So I said, what about Paul O'Grady? Now, you've got to bear in mind, Paul O'Grady by now is one of the biggest stars in the country. I mean, he is, was then, is now a giant and immensely popular. 
and in, in my view, a genius. So I said, Paul O'Grady, and they said, hmm. Now, Mark had produced Lily Live, um, and so he knew Paul very well. So he called up Paul's um, advisor, Joan, and said, do you think Paul will do it? And the, the message came back saying, Paul would love to do it. And so we got three one-hour documentaries um, hosted by Paul O'Grady telling the life story of Bob Monkhouse based on these books. So Paul would show the books and various um, people who appeared on the show to talk about Bob would look at the books in wonder and say, wow, look at his handwriting. It's fantastic. And um, they nominated for um, uh, a Fleet Street Press Award for Best Documentary. Didn't win. But nevertheless, it was just nice to be nominated. But it was... Um, Simon Lupton was right. Yeah, you, you can make a documentary about someone's life based on these inanimate objects, which are these joke books. I think certainly the um, one of the top top documentaries that's been made about Bob's life, and there have been many and several now. I have. Made. And what was tell you what was nice about that? It was a nice bookend to my career. I'll tell you truthfully, I started my career writing additional material for Bob Monkhouse mm. when I was a teenager. And I finished my career actually as a series producer of Bob Monkhouse. And that was that was just nice. And I thought maybe that's the time to sort of start stepping back now and, nice, and winding my career up. Yeah. A nice tip of the hat to him as well. And also I, I owe the fact that I'm here with you now uh entirely to Bob Monkhouse because if it hadn't been his for his faith in me uh, and his understanding of my sheer work ethic you know dumb luck and persistence I say it again but it was that sheer cussed work ethic uh, that I had that he had and I think he recognised that in me he came from a completely different background from me very very wealthy middle class I came from not that at all but I think he could see some, I flatter myself in thinking he could see some of him in me in that driven ambition to be involved in comedy. But from my point of view, not necessarily in performance. And maybe that was another angle that he admired, that I, I wouldn't muscle in saying, oh, can I be on the show as well as a performer? Because he knew that I had no intention or pretension of becoming a performer. And I think maybe that was a thumbs up for him as well. well I think it's a, a testament <clears throat> to the longevity of your uh, association together, of his his trust and, and respect in you. And I think that's a, a wonderful way to uh, end the episode. All right. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Um, yes, thank you for you. <laughs> thank you for my, to my listener for your time. And uh, we'll, th we'll do it again next week on another subject. Thanks, Marky. <laughs>